0: Thank you for joining the Faith Chapel Podcast. Wherever you may be joining us, we hope you know you are loved and that this message encourages you. i want to sit to speak. Uh, And it's because I broke my back in Iraq. I jumped out of a helicopter in 2011, broke my back, six vertebrae were shattered. Now I have 12 screws and two rods and I'm an inch taller. How about that? They stretched me out, cinched it down, and here I am. But I can't stand very long. My back goes into cramps. I'm not, it's just not working right. But but I don't have back pain. Thank you, Jesus. So if you don't mind, I'll sit down. The rule is when I sit, you stand. When you No, I'm kidding. I mean, it's church. Somebody's got to suffer, right? That's the attitude of a lot of folks. And the other thing I'm uncomfortable with, and I, and I want you to really take this to heart, and that is, I have to speak about myself today. I'm going to use myself, my life, as an illustration to my message. Now, I can talk about what God did for Peter, James, and John, all the disciples, but what God did for me will be a little bit more personal because I understand he's no respecter of persons. And what he's done for me, he'll do for you. And if you think that there are certain people God loves more, you don't know God. He loves us all and it is all of his love that he gives. Amen. Amen. So with that said, I'm going to refer to a few scriptures. If you have your iPhones, turn with me. <laughs> I waited all morning to say that. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1. One verse I'll refer to. We'll read it together. Chapter 1 of Philippians. It's verse 12. I would, that is like to say, I wish you would understand brethren. So that tells you this letter. Was not written to the world; it was written to the church. I would you should understand, brethren, brothers, and sisters, that the things which happen—say, things happen—they even have bumper stickers, something to that effect. Uh, God bless Forrest Gump. But the rest of the story is: things not just happen to you; they don't just happen to me. Things happen to Paul. The things which happened unto me—what happened to Paul? Well, he's in prison writing this letter. He didn't write it from a prayer tower in Tulsa. He didn't write it from a church office in San Diego or an evangelistic headquarters in Fort Worth. He wrote it from a prison cell. Something happened, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't good. It didn't feel good. You know, we live our life so much on what feels good. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. I'm going to tell you something. We don't learn through feel good. We learn through obedience and obedience through suffering. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. So, I don't advocate suffering. I'm not saying let's go stand in front of a city bus, get run over, so we have a testimony. <clears throat> no, nope, wrong answer. That's not what I'm looking for. I am going to tell you, suffering's out there looking for you, and when it comes, don't blame God. Yeah. Don't be shaking your fist in His. Why me, God? <laughs> what if He answered you? I don't know, George. It's just something about you I don't like. <laughs> What'd you expect? God does not do evil. Say that with me. God does not do evil. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a profound truth. Don't you ever forget it. So next time something goes quote unquote wrong and you think God lost view of you somewhere in the shadows or in the crowd of people, forget that. He has never taken his eyes off you and you're going to make it. He allows certain things to happen in our lives that he didn't do to us, but he doesn't stop it because and I almost said it. I almost let the cat out of the bag. It was right there on the tip of my tongue. Why do you think God allows some things to happen? There's, this is no joke. Some of you who've known me from the past know I look better today than I did have in the last 50 years. That's not a joke. In the last 24 months, at Brook Army Medical Center, I've had number of surgeries, number 56, 57, 58, 59. And in the last two years, 24 months, I've had nine surgeries. I've had 59 surgeries together. Number 50 was about 24, 26 months ago. They made me a nose. For all these years, I went without a nose. only had a piece of a nostril, and it was all pulled over and attached to my cheek without my nose. I have a nose as of 24 months ago. I'm so proud. It's a boy. He's beautiful. I love him. I look in the mirror, and I, sometimes I just sit there and look at my nose. They built it on top of my head. Not like my ear, they made that out of plastic. That, I mean, it, I don't mind the ear. Sometimes it fell off when I was preaching in Jamaica. I didn't know it fell off. It was sweaty and I. Everybody's doing this. Oh, oh. I knew something was wrong, so I checked my fly. It was all right. I, I look around, my ear's laying on my shoulder, for heaven's sake. I picked it up, dried the sweat, stuck it back on. I thought it'd get better. It got worse. They thought it was a miracle and they all got saved. And that is a true story. And I couldn't tell them, no, no, it's a phony ear. They would have thought I was a phony preacher. They would have stoned me. And I didn't think pastor wanted me to come tell you I went to Jamaica and got stoned. This all get stoned. That sounds like old time rock and roll. So, and you're sitting there and you're saying, he's laughing about all that. Yes, I am. On July the 26th, 1969, yes, teenager, that's right after the war of 1812. I know what you're thinking. The devil took his best shot, and I'm not going to lie, he hit me. He hit me broadside, knocked me halfway into eternity. But I'm still here. He's not because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. No weapon formed against me can prosper. Don't you understand, folks? We're not fighting a losing battle. This thing was already won. Some say, well, I read the end of the book. We win. I read the beginning of the book and we win. I read the middle of the book, we win. I read the end of the book. I read the whole book and we win everywhere because no weapon formed against us can prosper. Don't you understand if you fail, it's because you chose to. There's no way you fail when you walk with God. It hurts sometimes. And there are times that God allows things and we're back to where I started on this little subject because I didn't know the answer to why he allowed it. I knew he didn't do it. I knew what happened. I knew when it happened. I knew where it happened, but I didn't know why he allowed it to happen. And like a good lawyer, I don't ask a question in court I don't know the answer to. I just trusted God and said, God, for whatever reason you allowed it, I'm still good with it. I'm okay. I trust you. I trust you. And I went for 20 years not understanding why he allowed it. In fact, for those 20 years, every day I fought the battle against suicide. For 20 years, every day, the thought of suicide would enter my mind. And one day, I was on Trinity Broadcast Network with Jan Crouch, and I loved that woman so much. Some people said, hey, in lockers, too much hair hair, and too much makeup. I said, I told her, we're going to take your makeup off. We're going to find Jimmy Hoffa. She liked that one. She could take a joke like nobody. That woman was amazing. And one night, she invited me to be on TV, and she said, I need you here on Memorial Day. That was on Sunday night, Memorial Day's Monday. I said, are you kidding me? You call me this late? I just came off a 90-day tour. I got in just a few hours ago. I'm taking next week off. I'm not do-. She said, I got to have, you know, it sounds like I'm really important. Listen, when anyone calls that long, that late, the one they really wanted canceled. You're just on a list. She said, well, General Robinson Reisner is going to be on. He wants you. Oh, my goodness. Robbie Reisner was my best friend. He was a prisoner of war seven years, four and a half in in solitary confinement, one of the greatest heroes of all modern history, one of the greatest men I ever knew, and he loved Jesus with all of his heart. I said, if Robbie wants me, I'd go to the gates of hell for him, but I'm not going in. If he goes in, he's on his own. (laughs) So I went, and I got there, and I told her, I said, now, please... I am really, really tired. Don't ask any hard questions. Sound like Hillary Clinton during the primaries, didn't it? And yeah, that's not a I'm not kidding, because she she was tired. I know that thing. When you're exhausted, you don't want to deal with t- like the question of why to deal out. And the first thing out of her mouth was, Davy, do you still deal with baggage out of that war? She's not asking about my Samsonite. She's asking, are you do you deal with thoughts of Revenge, or suicide or, or self-destruction in any way. And you know when you're tired, you talk too much. Help me, up, talking and I can't shut up. <laughs> and I told her things I never told anybody. I told her how I was so suicidal at times I've sat with a pistol in my hand saying, God, just give me the courage to pull that trigger but don't let it hurt Brenda and my babies. Well, how are you going to do that? You can't kill yourself and not hurt all those that love you. You destroy the ones that love you and you play into the hands of your enemy. And I put the gun down. I one time went in the shower so that my brains would wash down the drain. Then I thought, she'll never shower. She'll never take another bath here. Now, bowman woman's got to shower. So I put the gun away. I want to tell you what, folks. I was fighting a battle that nobody could fight for me but Jesus. Nobody could fight that battle for me. They don't make good counseling for that kind of depth of darkness. See, when you stare into the darkness long enough, One day, it stares back into you, and then it's too late. When you've lost your hope, you've lost your last line of defense against suicide. Listen, people, let your hope be in Jesus. Don't give it up. Don't. I'm not emotional. I'm allergic to your carpet. (laughs) You just don't give it up. I'm all right. This is very personal to me. There's some things I can't share without it, just it breaks my heart because some of you in this room are dealing with that very thing right now as I speak, and you're saying he knows what he's talking about. because I have a scar to prove it. Don't you understand Jesus didn't go to Calvary to die by lethal injection. He didn't go in a limousine. He went the hard road, carried his own murder weapon to the top of the mountain and then was crucified on it, hands up, palms out, so you and I could see the scars. And when he says, I know how you feel, he has a scar to prove it. Don't ever, ever say to somebody, you don't know how they feel. Don't say to them, I know how you feel unless you've got a scar to prove it. See, I've never said to somebody who went through divorce, I know how you feel, because I've never been through divorce. Give me 10 Vietnams, but don't take my sweet baby. Don't take away Brenda. I'll do anything to keep her. So I only talk to those who understand what I'm talking about with the urgency I'm speaking of, it, and that's about suicide. And that's what they bring me in from all over the world to talk about for the military. 22 every day of our precious veterans kill themselves. Every 65 minutes... A veteran's blowing his brains out, overdosing, hanging himself, anything to get rid of that image of the retina on of the brain that has that picture of hell. They can't get out of their thoughts. There's some of you in this room, godly men and women. And if you're a Vietnam veteran, 99% men, if you're a Vietnam veteran, I'm going to tell you something. Jesus will bring you home with respect and honor you never got anywhere else. Bubba, you're my hero and I love you. I love you but I want to finish this little story because you see she asked me the question I didn't want to deal with when she said you know why God let you be scarred maimed and burned don't you and I wanted to pinch your little head off but it wasn't a Jerry Springer show I'm thinking no I don't know why God let me be scarred maimed and burned but this blue haired wonder is going to explain it to me I was so mad at her And then she said something that would transform my life for eternity. Listen to what she said and take it to heart. If you're fighting that battle and you don't know why God let you go through it, listen to this. Davy, she said, Jesus didn't shoot you that day and set your body on fire. She said, he let it happen because he knew he could trust you with the scar." I thought these scars were a liability only to learn they're a liberty. I thought these scars were condemnation, and he saw it as confirmation. He trusted me with something that I couldn't even trust myself with. And now because of these old scars, and they're looking better now, I got to tell you. Two years ago, they were still, children were still screaming and running into stuff in airports when they look at me. And it didn't help, and I'd go, you little snot. I shouldn't do that. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Teenagers would look at me and say, what happened to your face, dude? <laughs> I was burned bobbing for french fries. <laughs> I said that to one 70-year-old, and this was his response. Whoa. Did you get one? my favorite are men because men are men are polite ladies you got come on you got to give it up for the guys because I'm going to tell you men are they don't just walk right up of your face they start a conversation they talk about it and then kind of navigate into the subject and they go well it looks like you got hurt there yeah yeah. well what happened to your face I'm looking at him and I'm thinking you're ugly to me what happened to your mom <laughs> oh, you know you're ugly when you're born they slap her That's funny right there. I don't care who you are. (laughs) It's good. Well, I'm going to tell you something, folks. God didn't do anything bad today. God doesn't do evil. The things which happened unto me, like Paul said, have fallen out rather. That means been exchanged for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There it is. they don't call me because I'm good looking they don't call me because of my mighty military strength I have to sit down to talk for heaven's sake they don't call me for my mental achievements my academic achievements no I was in the top 10% but it was the lower one third of my class (laughs) I hated math and I found out why five out of four people don't understand fractions If you didn't get that, pastor's preaching on fractions next Sunday. <laughs> well, here's, here's the rest of the story, Paul Harvey. I knew when I was growing up that God had a special plan for my life. Didn't know what it was. I just knew it was special. And at five years old, I gave my heart to Christ, but I didn't understand what it meant. But I knew as a five-year-old boy, I was supposed to do that. Something just made me know I was supposed to do it. So I repented of all my evil sins At five years old, give me a break. Eleven years later, at 16, I understood what that grace of God meant that a little five-year-old boy didn't understand. And at 16, I reconfirmed what I did at five with understanding and knowledge. And I realized that Jesus... And my relationship with him was something I couldn't get through my family, through my folks. And when I was born, my mom almost died, and she never recovered. Any of you that ever knew my mom knew that she was partial to start with of her ability to communicate with me. But it was so bad, I had to have a nanny take care of me. She was from Mexico, Matamoros. Her name was Maria Rubio. She taught me how to roll my orders. And she taught me Spanish. I didn't learn English until I was six years old. Then they told me I wasn't a Mexican. My Hispanic brain could not get around that one. And it confused me, and this is important for you to understand, it was a cataclysmic paradigm shift in my life to understand that all this time, I was something I didn't know what I was. I thought I was a Mexican, and I wasn't. And discovering that made me readjust to learn to readjust to changes along the way that do not, today, change doesn't frighten me. It doesn't. I've had so many drastic changes in my life. And when something catastrophic to some hits me, well, we deal with it. It's no big deal. I've had worse. And on July the 26th, 1969, I thought the worst had occurred. And that day on the bank of a river in the jungle of Vietnam on the border with Cambodia, I picked up a white phosphorus hand grenade and prepared to throw it. And my life would go into pause. And for the next year's, It was, how do I take my next breath? How do I get through one more heartbeat? How do I even plan for the future when I can't plan for the next minute? My mind went back that day to a moment in time that still haunts me. That day that I remember looking at her and saying, that's the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth. And I asked her to marry me. And she slapped me. She said, I'm only 13 years old. I said, but you have the body of a 14-year-old. I was 16 years old. She said, if you love me, you'll wait for me. I said, I'll pick you up at 10, I understand. She said, if you love me, you'll wait for me. And I knew what it meant. And we married, both of us were virgin. You can clap, I'll wait. Thank you. Thank you. And to this day, we're still married. No, you thought I was going to say virgin. Ha, oh, got you, didn't I? <laughs> Y'all are fun. You catch everything. Aren't you glad I'm not sick? <laughs> so I kissed her goodbye at the airport. I got five steps away from her. Now, I've got to tell you how this came down. I got drafted. The draft, it's called the Selective Service Board, got me while I was still a ministerial student. I was in seminary at Southwestern University, and I got this letter in my post office box telling me to go take a physical. I'm being drafted. I wrote back. I said, thank you for your inquiry into my health. I feel great. Thank you. They insisted I take that physical, and I did. It was the only exam I passed that semester. I got no plus on the blood test. There you go. There you go. It hit. It hit. So I passed my physical. They told me I'm going to be inducted in the Army next morning at 830. Next morning at 830, I was at the recruiter's office for the United States Navy. I signed every piece of paper. He slid under my ballpoint pen. I did not want to go in the Army. I joined the Navy so I wouldn't get hurt serving in the military. (laughs) I got up one morning and had a bad decade. So they sent me to Coronado, California, just right down the road here. After I got out of boot camp, I actually went through boot camp at what was called Nimitz uh, Naval Base. Now it's gone, I think. But when I got out of that, they put me at, at Coronado. And I was trained there. Our, our trainer was a Navy SEAL. Our, and I wasn't a SEAL, but he was. And he was, oh my goodness, he was mean. I didn't know humans could do the things that guy did. We ran. Have you ever seen a fat boy run? I was still jiggling 15 minutes after we were through running. I'm, I'm plodding along trying to... And he's running all eight miles backwards. And he, I'll tell you, he shot the fat down. I went home, my wife looked at me, she said, you're not half the man you used to be. And she meant it. I went through SEER training, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape training up in Whidbey Island. And I was told, I didn't know what their, who it was, but I was told it was SEAL Team 1. The SEAL team from here, SEAL Team 1, is the team I was with in Vietnam, but I was not a SEAL. I was a brown water black beret. And now it's been changed to special boat teams. And the special boat teams and the special dive vehicle teams and the U.S. Navy SEALs, all three are stationed out here at Coronado, at Naval, Naval Amphibious Base. And I'm going to tell you, that's, that's one of the most amazing places on the earth. And I was so honored and privileged to serve my country in the Navy Special Warfare Command for the year and two months that I served, and then a year a year and four months I served, then a year and two months on top of that in the hospital. So I was only in the military two years and six months. But I learned more in that two years and six months than if I lived a thousand years I could ever learn. I learned it through suffering. And the things I suffered have taught me lessons in life that I've tried to pass on to save some somebody, somebody maybe suffering and having to learn it the hard way like I did. But I knew what suffering was, I'd seen it all my life through my mom. Curled up in a fetal position in a nursing home, incommunicado, she couldn't talk, she couldn't hear nothing that I know of. Fed by a tube for year after year after year. i played play my guitar and sing psalms to her. I don't know if she could hear me till the day she died. But I gotta tell you what happened. At that airport, when I got ready to go to Vietnam, that little teenager looked at me and she said, Davy, are you coming back? I cannot get that question out of my head. In all the tours I've done for the military all over the world and getting ready to go to England Tuesday, I go over there the rest of the week, come back, take five days home, then I go to Germany for another tour at Rheinstein Air Force Base, working with the military all over the world. Every time I go to the airport, she asks me the same question, Davy, are you coming back? And I remember that day when she asked me that. I looked at her, I knew the stats. And this is what we were told. You'll have the highest KIA of any military organization per capita. And I thought, this is dangerous. This, somebody's gonna get hurt. This is gonna leave a mark. Well, I was right. Now you can't prove what I said because they don't count KIA if they don't get a body. And even though they know your body went down with that boat was never retrieved, they know you're dead but they can't call it that till they get a body or a body part with your DNA. So of our organization, for me to say, I would come back without a scar, and that's what I told her, was foolish. I made a promise I couldn't keep when I said, I'll be back without a scar. Then I thought, why did I say that? I could have just said, I'll be back. Then I could have been your governor for a while. <laughs> California, oh my word. I kissed her goodbye and all the tears I'd held back broke. And I remember tasting the salt of her tears on my lips. And sometimes it's so real, I think I still can. I got on that airplane and I went to a war I didn't start and one I wouldn't end. I would just be a number of, just in a number of numbers about people hurt, killed, whatever. A statistic. But it would be more than that to me. More than that to my family. And more than that to God. I was no longer just a number. I was not a number of Israel. I was something to God, and he put his stamp on my life and promised that he would go with me and not forsake me. And he kept his promise. I broke mine. I came home scarred mutilated. That little beautiful girl got a bill of goods. Her handsome young prince turned into the frog. <laughs> I almost croaked. <laughs> I think that's cool. That's funny, I like it. But that day on the bank of the river in Vietnam called the Vam Cote, right on the border with Cambodia. In fact, I took Matt Crouch and his beautiful wife Laurie and a five-camera team and a drone, and we went back in the jungle on a riverboat all the way to the border with Cambodia just a few months ago and shot a television special for TBN back there. I I was at the very place where I jumped in the water on fire. Listen to the story. I drew back a white foster's hand grenade to throw. I was one second from delivering it on target. One more second, I would have delivered that grenade to the enemy bunker. But that one second is how long it takes to change your life. When I drew back, I didn't know I was in the crosshairs of a sniper. And he pulled the trigger, shooting in my head, but he missed, I guess, because he couldn't have been shooting from my hand. It's too small a target from 500 yards or whatever. The bullet went through the back of my hand and detonated the grenade six inches from my face. And in one second, the doctors estimated, in one second, it blew off and burned 60 pounds of my flesh. I was 190 pounds. I weighed that morning in competition with a Navy SEAL who was we were working out, trying to see who could keep their weight. And after you get through training, you start to slough off a little bit. We didn't want to do that. I weighed 190 pounds that morning. That night, they weighed me in my bed, deduct the weight of the bed. I weighed 130 pounds. And I kept both legs and both arms. And when that grenade blew, I went blind in my eye, deaf in my ear, blew my hair off, got my hair back. I bought it. There's a bald guy in China. I don't mind it. I, I, I hate chasing it across church parking lots on windy Sundays, though. Oh, yes, it has happened. I spoke at the Citadel Military Academy down in Charleston, South Carolina, some years ago. And I got through speaking, we're walking out to go to the car to go to lunch, and I'm with a four star general. The wind caught my hair and it took off across that parking lot. Looked like a fierce bee, just, oh man. And I went to go, get, and a dog shot right between my feet, took off after. Where'd the mutt come? He got my hair and brought it to me. How do you know it was mine? I've had embarrassing moments, let me tell you. I could tell you more, but it's in the church. And I gotta be careful of our timing. And, and I'm already running a little bit late. Now, he didn't tell me I'd evaporate at twelve, but I'm gonna try to be through quickly. I ended up in the hospital for a year and two months. They picked me up on that riverbank on a little stretcher, and when they picked me up, I caught the stretcher on fire. My skin was everywhere, it still burning. In the water on the bank, I was beside myself. <laughs> I needed to pull myself together. See, I got all these lines I'm wanting you to enjoy. And they put me on a stretcher, and it caught fire, and I fell right through my head. Have you ever had one of those days? (laughs) Nothing goes right. They put me on another stretcher, rolled up in a wet Army blanket. They dipped in that river, which was a sewer. It's a miracle. I didn't die of every disease known to man. And they got me in the helicopter. Away we go, and the medic thinks I'm dead, and the pain I haven't spoken of caught up with me. The shock wore off, and suddenly at about 1,500 feet, I guess, the pain hit me like a train. And I yelled, medic. And he thought I was dead. When I yelled medic, he almost jumped out of the helicopter. (laughs) That's true. And the pilot, I think he lost control. We're spinning, dropping like a rock. Oh, God, we're going to crash. I'll be the only survivor. (laughs) Who's going to help me then? They got me to Saigon, put me on a big jet uh, uh, hospital plane, and sent me to Japan. And for time's sake, I'm going to go through these quickly. Got me to Japan. And now where I was supposed to die. And they sent my wife. They were going to bring her to escort my body home. And in Japan, I did something really stupid. I asked for a mirror. And they did something really stupid. They brought it. And when I looked up in the glass with this eye I could still see with. I knew. I broke that promise. And there's no teenage girl could of a monster like me. And I took it out of God's hands and I took it out of the hands of my doctors. I took it out of the hands of all the family and friends that loved me, who were praying for me. And I decided I would end it right there. I had no gun or knife. How do you kill yourself when you're hooked up to everything that keeps you alive? You unhook. And I pulled the tube and I laid my head back and I waited to die, honestly. And I got hungry. (laughs) It was the wrong tube. They don't label them suicide tube, dinner tube. <laughs> catheter, you don't want, anyway. Well, I'll tell you this. I got the chewing out of a lifetime. Then they were mad at me for pulling that tube. And they sent me to America. And I want to close with two short stories, but I'm going to reverse their order of sequence chronologically. The last will be first and the first will be last. The last story I'm going to, tell you first. Now, I'm going to tell you the first one. I, or the, I don't remember. And what I'm telling you is they cannot be separated. You're going to see why. So let me tell you what happened when Brenda came to see me in the ICU, which I didn't know what that meant. I did, I'd never been in a hospital before. And then they gave me a rope. Those things don't come together in the back. It's called the ICU. <laughs> I didn't go to medical school, but I figured that one out. I'm pretty good at anacronyms. <laughs> they put me in the ICU. We nicknamed it death row. You'll see why. 13 of us in there. I was the only one that lived. Everybody died. They put us in there to die. They didn't want us dying on the main ward because it would discourage patients that had a chance. So we went in that room together and discouraged each other to death. I'm the last one to be discouraged. My, I, I'm going to tell you this. We were all alive when they let visitors come in one at a time. And when they let the woman come see the guy in the bed next to mine, she took her ring off, threw it on his bed. She said, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. 100% third degree, no way he's going to live. Nobody's ever survived 100% third degree. And she walked out and he died first. And I knew, I knew what's coming. She's just a kid. She's just a little girl. She doesn't deserve this. And she walked in, and I read her lips when she said, the doctor pointed me and said, that's your husband. She said, that's not my husband. You know how you can do that? Sometimes you just catch it right. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? You can be watching the NFL. They missed the field goal that would have won the game. And, and they put the camera on the coach. You can read he, his he, lips. talking about his mom. And... <laughs> I read her lips. That's not my husband. My heart sank, and I looked over, and I'm checking the tubes out because one of them's got to work. Which one do I pull? Got to my bed, and she walked up to the head of the bed, and she put down and kissed what was left in my face and looked me in my good eye, and she said, I want you to know I love you. Welcome home, Davy." And when she says, Davy, <laughs> I said, I'm here. I'm home, and I'm sorry. She said, Why? She so, said, because I can never look good for you again. She said, baby, you never were good looking. I discovered the truth about women. They don't care what you look like. It's who you are, not what you look like that matters to a girl. She loves you for who you are, buddy. And if you want to win a heart, buy flowers. Forget the fishing pole for a minute. Buy some flowers. And if you're broke, go to the cemetery. They're free. I get them there all the time. <laughs> That's a joke. Do not do that. Thou shall not steal cemetery flowers, the Bible said. I left that hospital suitcase in one hand, sweetheart in the other. But you got to hear what happened. When that woman walked out and Brenda walked up to my bed and said that, it changed my view of life. Another cataclysmic change that was so wonderful. But I want to tell you what happened when I got there. Now, that's the second story, but now, the first event, but now the second story now. And this one was the first event, and this I closed with. It was do or die before Brenda ever saw me. They brought me in by jet, from Japan to Lackland Air Force Base, put me on a helicopter, transported me over to Brook Army Medical Center. They put me in a tank of water, and any of you that have been burned know exactly what I'm talking about. It's called debridement. They put you in the tank of water, of pure saline water. It's about half as deep as your body in a horizontal position, and they splash water up on you, and it softens that dead skin. My body was in a hard shell of charcoal, from my waist up, they could break it off. They were breaking off what used to be my flesh. And some of it was so hard, they would take a knife after it and they would, and they cut my nose off that little piece that was left. They cut what was a dangling of a charcoal, piece of charcoal was once my ear. They were pulling these body parts off. I could hear them thunking, thunk into the trash can. And I bowed up with so much pain and anxiety and it wouldn't go away and I went into a trance and I grabbed one of my nurses by the hair of her head. I flipped her clear into that tank with me and had her head in the water. I was trying to kill her because my brain says she's killing you, fight for your life. And it's, there were people right there. That she was never at risk. And Her white uniform was pink with my diluted blood in her hair filled with my dead skin and charcoal flesh. She wiped her face, dried her hands, and went right back to work on me, saving my life. When I had had more than I could stand and I'm in convulsions, they took me out and put me on a little gurney. And the gurneys, they're pushing me in back to, back to this place called Death Row, okay, the ICU. And as they're walking, pushing, there's a wheel on this thing. It's rattle, 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 rattle. It's not like a Walmart shopping cart. That thing <laughs> making me so mad. And when, th- when you're hurting, everything makes you mad. And then it got worse when the medic pulled a blunder. He should, In the morning at 8.30, we're going to do this again. I looked up at him. I said, you and the United States Army are not big enough to put me in that tank. You'll never do that to me again. Well, he'd heard that stuff, I'm sure. He said, okay, all right, all right. You know, you'll die. I said, well, wait a minute. I said, let's negotiate this. That's what I told him. I said, let's negotiate this. I said, if you're going to do this to me tomorrow at 8.30, don't tell me surprise me. (laughs) I said, because now I'm not going to sleep all night because I know hell's coming on a blue-draped gurney. And I was right. I heard that rattly wheel coming down that corridor. I tensed up, went into anxiety attack that was major. They get there and they push the gurney up beside my bed. They forget to lock it down. And when they swung me over, it moved out of the way. The guys on the foot end dropped me. I'm angling down. I got my little wings out. holding on, this gurney's roll. I'm thinking, oh, this is going to hurt because I know I'm going to fall. And another change, one of the most drastic changes that would guide my life through eternity. A man stepped up. I'd never seen him before. Five foot six, I mean, six foot seven, maybe. A solid muscle. And when he moved, cannonballs moved, popped up on this guy's shoulder. And... And he had a tattoo on his arm. It was his name, Rosie. <laughs> he was black, and he was bald, and he was strong, and he put one hand under the back of my neck, and I knew what he was doing. I stiffened my neck, gave him some leverage, and with his other hand, he picked me up, and against that giant chest of cannonballs, he pulled me, and I, he t- I thought he was going to put me on the gurney. No gurney for Rosie. Down that long, long corridor, he carried me to a place we called hell. And he bit down and he lowered me into the water. And they splashed the water and there were no rubber duckies. It was going to hurt. And they pulled out those stainless steel tools of torture and they attacked me and they were cutting flesh off as fast as they could. They can't put you to sleep and they have to do it every day. They can't give you enough drugs to keep you from feeling or it'll kill you. You're in the rock and hard spot and you know there's no hope and you lose it. And I looked over and Rosie had backed up against the wall, folded his arms and the morning sunrise in San Antonio coming through that window, cast its hue onto that, Beautiful black ebony skin with little streaks of tears looking like streams of fire dripping on his arms. His lips were moving, and I realized Rosie is praying for me. I relaxed. It was so efficient. They thought I died and they quit hurting me from then on. I played dead. When it hurt, play dead. It worked. <laughs> they quit. And when I'd had enough, my head. Back of my head, and my heels were all that was touching. I was in convulsions. They said, "Rosie, come get him." He stepped over, reached down that filthy water, and he picked me up. And they dried the skin off my skin off his arms. They dried my body, and he turned. And again, there was no gurney for Rosie. He carried me. He carried me where I couldn't go on my own. And with every step, he said, You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. And he said it over and over and over. And he got me to my little room. We called death row and lowered me down on the bed and pressed against the air mattress, retracted those forklift arms so they wouldn't touch my raw flesh. And he turned and faced me and he said, You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. And with a mother's touch, he reached up and a little piece of hair on this side somehow survived. And he stroked it, pushed it down. I looked into the eyes of a man I'd never seen. I think I saw Jupiter and Mars and Venus, the stars. Who was this man? And then he did something I've never let a man do. He kissed my forehead and he walked away. Fast forward 20 years. It's a place called Oregon. The Oregon National Guard Air National Guard I was just there last week Visiting with the most Unusual person You're about to hear about I go and I speak 20,000 people this 4th of July event When I got through speaking The crowd approached from every direction I was shaking Well the crowd dissipates finally And one lady is left standing there She's dressed in a beautiful suit Business type suit Her hair is a tiny bit of salt and pepper. She's a few years older than me. I look at her and she says, you're Dave, right? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, but that's not really your name. It's David. I said, yes. She said, but that's your middle name. Your first name is Milton. I said, yes, Milton David Reaver. Yes, ma'am. Who are you? She said, I'm the woman you pulled into the tank that day. (laughs) She said, I thought it was you, but I didn't recognize you with your clothes on. Don't go to Sunday school with your nurse. (laughs) I looked at her and I said, do you remember a guy named Rosie? It's like she snapped out of a trance. She said, I haven't thought of him in years. I said, do you know where he is? She said, no. I said, do you know where he came from? Maybe I can find him. She said, I don't know where he came from. I said, do you remember his name? She said, all I remember is the tattoo and it said Rosie. I said, when did he come to Brook Army Medical Center? She said, when you did. I said, when did he leave? She said, when you did. You know what my friends tell me? He's an angel. (sighs) Angels don't have tattoos. (laughs) Maybe he was, but I hope not because if he's an angel, he was on an assignment just doing what he was told to do. I hope he was a man on a mission because he did what he wanted to do. He didn't have to care about what color I was. He didn't care about what rank I was. And when you're burned, you're pretty rank. I'll tell you that. He didn't care what branch of service. None of that mattered to Rosie. What mattered to Rosie was, I was a broken, hurting unit and he cared more about me than himself. Never send an angel to do a man's job. Let God... Reach this community through you. And don't ask him to send an angel to do your job. Love this community. Love them all the way through the darkest hours of their life. Be there when they hurt the most. Love them and cry with them. And know how they feel with empathy. Don't sympathize. Empathize. Care enough to step into their lives and change their destiny and their destination i got to quit. I've talked too much. I love you. I'm so glad to be back. I'm Dave Reaver and I approve of this message. I love you. Woo. Do something about this carpet. It's killing me. <laughs> wow. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. If you hadn't already, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. If you'd like to further connect with us here at Faith Chapel, visit us online at faithchapelsd.com or on any social media platform at Faith Chapel SD. We hope to see you real soon.